So this morning I want to continue with the theme of practicing with the body. And this is the fourth uh, morning on that theme and the last one in this cycle. Uh, and I've uh, been very pleased to explore this, I think, very uh, important and um, sometimes challenging theme of practicing with the body. And just for those who weren't here at all of the last mornings, I'll just mention that the first two weeks especially, the focus was on the importance for our practice of practicing with the body, of um, developing awareness of bodily experience, especially in this highly mental culture, to, uh, in a sense, create a counterpoint to what's often the dominance of the mind or the dominance of the mental stream. Uh, and as well, I think uh, culturally it's highly significant, very much related, I believe, to ecological and much larger social and cultural issues to have us actually ground more in the bodies and move away from this sense of leaving the body to exist in some virtual reality. A very strong cultural trend, of course, and it uh, maybe is not an either-or, but I think that connecting with the body is very crucial culturally and socially. It's very also very crucial in this culture as a way to have the practices of mindfulness and cultivation of wisdom and compassion come alive on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis in this culture, that having attention to the body is a very fundamental way to stay present, to be there for our lives rather than have our lives go by through a stream of mental habit. So we've explored that in some depth and also the way that we have uh, often highly conditioned attitudes towards our bodies might be related to gender, culture, uh, family history, personal history, and that it's very helpful to see what those are, to bring uh, our attitudes to the body, many of which can be uh, more unconscious or subtle. Um, very valuable reflection in that regard. Reflect on what you thought of your body when you were a teenager. <laughs> Uh, and there is tremendous amount of material. And again, a lot of it is hard, and, uh, and especially for um, girls, I think, probably more than boys, there is this strong conditioning to think our bodies are inadequate. Probably there in some ways for most of us, if we look carefully. And it can very strongly influence not just our bodily experience, but our very conceptions of ourselves. I think that's part of the practice that we take on when we uh, do this practice with the body. It's part of it that gets uncovered. We've been cultivating a series of practices and inviting us to see which practices we're drawn to that help us connect more with the body. It might be awareness of breathing. It might be the access in 
uh, formal meditation and in everyday experience to uh, strong bodily experiences, body sensations, whether it's in eating or um, being in the rain, making love, um, taking a bath, uh, whatever that is, the, the invitation to really open to, to awareness of the body, formal practice of being with the whole body. And we've also invited if this feels appropriate, what I think is quite important practice of keeping some body awareness in the midst of speech and interaction, which is a challenging practice. And I'll say more about that in, in a few moments. Uh, might even do that right here. I've been inviting that challenging practice of, of uh, maintaining both inner and outer awareness at the same time. I believe that is also quite crucial to making the practice of awareness and cultivation of wisdom and compassion come more alive in our daily, uh, daily flow of our experience. So how can we be interactive or speaking? And then again, I, as I have said many times, I will intend to do this as I give this talk. Can I stay in my body? So it's not a purely cognitive experience. I think this points in the direction that I'll um, take up a, li a little more depth in a moment. Last week we looked at ways that our practice with the body can open to the development of wisdom. You know, if the first few, first two sessions were a little more focused on mindfulness and cultivation of mindfulness, last time we looked at how bodily experience opens us up to developing wisdom. And particularly the focus was on three ways of cultivating wisdom or three themes related to the cultivation of wisdom. The first, being with bodily experience as a way to look at impermanence, to have more depth of understanding of impermanence. And I was suggesting these wisdom practices as ways that one way that our meditation practice can take on a little more focus and precision. I mentioned how it's quite common for our meditation to be generally pleasant, relaxed, generally happy, but not so clear or precise. <laughs> and I'm wondering if that resonates with anyone. <laughs> Raise your hand if it resonates some. So it's quite common, you know, and there's, in a sense, nothing wrong with it. But it, it um, is definitely not all of the potential of meditation. It's very valuable to relax, to be peaceful, but sometimes our consciousness gets a little foggy or vague. And we can bring a little more precision, not in an overly effortful way, but just by doing some of these practices. So being with the flow of our experience and just being aware of how one thing leads to another, of how I'm sitting and I notice a thought, a body sensation, further thoughts, just to notice how that flow works and to tune in and, and to realize things are impermanent. You know, to counter that strong tendency in our experience for everything to be solid, to feel solid. Solid trees, chairs, people, thoughts and so forth. But we start to see our experience more as a flow. And we also looked at reflection on the theme of impermanence in the context of knowing 
my impermanence as a being. Offered in so many different traditions as a way to deepen motivation to know that I too am impermanent. Like my thought earlier of lunch, I too will pass. <laughs> um, that's not the most flattering comparison. <laughs> but but uh, on the other hand, it's true. <laughs> and to see that and to reflect on that is often taken to be uh, a practice which helps us to ask the question, what's important for me? Am I wasting my time? How am I living my life? What am I doing? So impermanence as a way to cultivate wisdom, reflecting on impermanence. The second was to reflect and look carefully at how suffering arises. To look carefully at bodily experience and notice when we tend to suffer in small or larger ways. When I have a body sensation and I start to tense around it and there's a kind of a small suffering. And so we're invited to study that. Much as we do generally in our practice, we study suffering, what its nature is, what its cause is. We look, we're particularly invited to look at the, the qualities of grasping and compulsive resistance to experience as causes of suffering and invited to uh, experiment. Can I be with that challenging body sensation that I'm tensing around, can I just relax with it? And we pointed last time to how that practice, which I think all of us have experienced in some ways, that that's one of the starting points for the application of meditation to health and, med- and medicine, where it has profound uh, impact, really, on people's well-being. For someone with chronic pain, to learn not to tense around it physically, somatically, and emotionally is huge. And of course, that's a version of the teaching which we also can know emotionally. Here we're looking at it more on a bodily level. And we also can look at our bodily experience to see this continual flux and ask questions of to what what extent do I uh, take the experiences of my body and create a self out of it or say, that's me, that's mine. We're invited to really relax into a sense of the flow of our experience that is uh, more of a changing flux. We're invited to see when do I grab hold of an experience and say, this is me, or say, I have that bodily experience, I'm really cool, or not cool. And so those are three bodily experiences, or body practices, we could say, that help us cultivate wisdom, and that's what we looked at last time. And I wanted uh, this time to focus further, really, on a further aspect of, really, of wisdom that is particularly interesting in our times, and that really collects, connects to this question of how in our body practices do we see the body as connected to the heart, and to the quality of compassion 
and also to the mind. So more generally, I want to look for the rest of the time at what we might call the body-mind-heart connection, and particularly uh, ending with holding our experience of the body with compassion and resting that experience of the body in our hearts. I think much as we do in this group practice that, we, that we've done for so many years at the end of our sittings, where we sit and we sometimes hear accounts of difficult body experiences, sometimes other kinds of difficulties, and sometimes uh, accounts of wonderful experiences for which people have gratitude or want to celebrate. Uh, but certainly part of what we hear are difficult experiences. We sometimes hear difficult experiences related to health or to the physical aspects. And in a way, we cultivate that heart of compassion in relation to the um, vicissitudes of the body, our bodies and those of others. So in looking at the relation of, of body and mind and heart, I think we're, there's really a, a way in which we at this time, I think, and I think this is true in an evolutionary sense, both uh, in terms of where we are socially and culturally, that there's, there, we have a, um, a kind of a, a draw towards what we might call an integration of uh, body and mind and heart. And they've been fragmented, I think, culturally and socially in many ways, um, perhaps for as long as 10,000 years. <laughs> uh, but certainly it goes back uh, several thousand years. You can be not very hard to trace when you look back at some of the major texts from philosophers or religious figures. And there's this very, I think, strong vision uh, that is there now of the importance of connecting the body, the mind, and the heart. And we could say it's almost a vision, a developing vision of what uh, spiritual maturity or spiritual wholeness might mean, which could be, which has to do with being really uh, connected, deeply connected with the body, living an embodied existence, uh, um, having an open heart, having a clear mind, and uh, being open to the deeper, further energies of the spirit. You know, so there's, but I think there's very much the sense of, and we sometimes have retreats at Spirit Rock where we focus on that kind of integration of awareness of the body, awareness of the heart, and clarity of mind. And I personally, I think, and this is me speaking and not, as it were, referring to ancient teachings, but I, I, I do think that this is um, a really a horizon for much of our practice. And, and so it's important to talk about that kind of, um, that kind of integration that kind of connection. And then a lot of people are really working on that. And, and so for us, this could mean how do we actually uh, connect the body and the mind and the heart? Uh, because uh, for 
many of us, that they have been disconnected, and they've even been disconnected in spiritual practices. There's this wonderful book that I've been reading that's in the bookstore by Reginald Ray called Touching Enlightenment, which is about the place of the body in spiritual practice. And he maintains that large number of Western Buddhists are practicing in a disembodied way. It's quite interesting that the Buddhism is more mental and intellectual and not, very, not truly embodied, and that would be predictable in a culture which is strongly disembodied. Touching Enlightenment uh, by Reginald Ray. And, and so we can, we can see how that, that, that is a strong cultural pressure. And if that is true, and we've looked at that before, then making those connections is quite important. Um, we might do that in different ways. You know, personally, some of my own evolution, I, coming from that um, kind of shocking experience that I probably mentioned uh, two or three times ago when I was a college student, I think, or no, I was actually, yeah, I was a student and I um, was, I noticed, even though I had been physically very active all my life, that my experience was totally in my mind. And I said, and I found myself walking and thinking, I am just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> <laughs> Very physically active, but my experience, consciousness on a pole. <laughs> and it was a shocking experience, you know, or the realization. Say, is that, hmm, you know, is that, that's, that's interesting, you know. And, and so for myself, over time, the practice has been to give a lot of energy to reconnect with the body, as we've been doing for these last weeks. And I think sometimes, you know, some of us, it's different, you know. Uh, I, w I was in a very interesting group about 10 years ago, and we it was really a group on integrative spirituality. And there were teachers from, uh, actually from uh, Spain, from Barcelona, who were teaching these very interesting practices. And they, they worked with uh, what they called four centers. They worked with the center of the body, the center of the heart, the center of mind or consciousness, and the center of what they call the vital energy, which is connected more some, with unconscious, with sexuality, and so forth. So a little bit different than Buddhist model. But um, what was very interesting about that group was that we could see among the people in the group that some of them were very developed in body, but not so much in the clarity of their minds, or not even sometimes in their hearts, very embodied, not so connected with their hearts, and others the opposite, right? Others could be very heartfelt, but not so embodied. Others might be mostly in their minds and neither heartfelt nor embodied, right? And it was interesting, and the model that was being suggested was that we might both develop where we weren't so developed and then connect everything together. So actually, two different processes. So, uh, and I think as we develop in each of these, we, we can, the, the integration and connection sometimes happens by itself. And so for me, it was very interesting because I, even though initially I had done a lot of practices to be more embodied, it was really when I was first learning meditation, that was part of the revelation. 
you know, it came after, shortly after that, that noticing of consciousness on a pole, <laughs> that I, I could, uh, I was studying meditation and really just coming back to sensory experience, doing retreats where I would be primarily in bodily experience for days on end. Different experience than I had had. To be with my senses, to be listening to the wind or listening to a creek for hours on end. And it felt revelatory to have that experience, to come back to my body. And yet, um, there was a lot more work to be done. You know, if I've had different phases of really working to be more, practicing to be more embodied, so we could do that. And it's also, uh, even though I think personally my nature has always been to be somewhat emotional, I think partly growing up as a boy and a young man in this culture, uh, I didn't have so much access to my heart or to my emotions. You know, <coughs> the sort of person you would ask, how do you feel? And you'd get a cognitive response, <laughs> right? Um, you may be the spouse of someone who offers such responses. <laughs> That may, that may, I think it's quite common, right? It's, it's, very, it's very common. So I had to learn. And, and what I've loved also about the meditation practice is I could learn through doing metta. So a very beautiful way to really develop access to the heart. And of course, that happens also, especially through friendships and close relationships where that heart, the heart qualities can, can come out more fully. But the loving-kindness practice, very beautiful practices. So we can, in a way, focus and develop deeper embodied practice or deeper heart practices. There are a lot of ways to do that. Or uh, fuller clarity of mind, fuller um, understanding and so forth. And then we can also make, make those connections to really um, start connecting those different parts of ourselves. And so, for example, the practice that we did in the guided meditation is a way to start to um, help that integration happening. And to particularly to, um, as we are maybe separately developing more grounding in body or heart, I think, I think we have to sometimes do that in a separate way in a focused way, develop. That's what we found in our group, for example. People had to really give some attention, like I did in the bodily experiences, to have that awareness of the body. And so we do all of that, and we begin to see, have them, the integration of them be a reality, much as uh, we know from, for example, from uh, what's being done in a lot in the areas of health and medicine, this relationship of mind and body and heart that, you know, contemporary science doesn't quite know what that means, but it's being explored in, we would say, at the fringes of medicine by people like John Kabat-Zinn, who has explored mindfulness-based stress reduction, or by people who are exploring mind-body medicine, a big uh, horizon in contemporary medicine, people looking at what's the, uh, what's the effect of thinking on health. How do, does my thinking come to express itself in the body? And part of what we do 
when we, I think, when we um, explore the relation of mind and body and heart, not only do we sometimes need specialized practice and attention to really be aware of one of these domains, but we also start to see how they're connected, start to explore that. And so we can do that very simple practice that we do, uh, that I, we did at the end of the sitting, uh, which I sometimes, called change, I sometimes call changing channels. You just sit there and you're aware of your body, and then you change the channel. Okay, what's the mind doing right now? Click. Stay with the mind for a while. Click. What's the heart? Where's the heart right now? What's the mood? Stay with it a while. Click. It's a very interesting practice. I've done that sometimes at retreats all day long. It changes how you see the mind-body-heart relation. It may be, you know, it may, I, I studied philosophy for a time, and one of the major conundrums in philosophy is the so-called mind-body problem. I mean, I'm going to make a little bit of fun of it right now, but, but you have these people sitting in classrooms trying to think out how the mind and body is related. And it is a little humorous uh, in some way, but actually it's, they've never been able to resolve it conceptually, to my, to my knowledge. And, um, but we can, we can start to see that it may be that we are one being and we have these different uh, lenses. One lens is the body, one lens is the mind, one lens is the heart. There may not be these separate parts of ourselves, but more different um, windows into our nature. I offer that as a possible way to hold this. And so we can explore how does the mind and the body and the heart connect. I think it's a big part of practice. Very important for personal health. Very important for personal well-being. You know, in some of the groups that I've done, working with the theme of transforming the judgmental mind, you know, we sometimes talk about that because unexpectedly that's been a major focus of my work with people for the last seven or eight years. I didn't intend that. I just happened to um, myself be highly judgmental (laughs) and have to work with it. over time. And after I had done that for a number of years, I found, as a recovering judgmental person, um, I found that uh, it's a really big thing in this culture. Really, really huge. And very interesting for me has been using practices that connect mind and body and heart in working with judgments. You know, just, so just to give an example, which I think really is, uh, hopefully can energize and inspire us to, to keep on looking in our own experience. How, do, how, do, how does mind and body and heart, uh, how do they connect? So what I have found, for example, um, and maybe I'll just talk about my own experience and a little bit about others, is that when we, um, when we explore some of our more charged judgments, and for many of us there are self-judgments which are, can be quite harsh, you know, it could be, and when we trace them and do a, a quite a bit of detective work, we may find that we hold certain judgments, often beneath the surface, often somewhat unconscious, 
that uh, might be a judgment like, um, if I'm really myself, I won't be loved. Or I'm flawed. Or I don't really matter. We're talking about the negative ones here. <laughs> and there are positive ones as well that we have. But some of these negative ones, we can call them limiting beliefs, are quite deep. And what I have found in working with them is that these strong, deep beliefs, somewhat unconscious, they organize our experience in a way which has manifestations in body, mind, and heart. And when we do this work, we sometimes can see that more clearly in ways which can transform very old patterns. So, for example, if um, I think, and as I've worked with people, I've seen some people may have a belief that, um, I've heard it from people, and we've been able to identify it, that I really don't matter. These are people maybe who get that message at age two or three, for whatever reasons, from family. It's quite common, you know. And these turn out to be, you know, the people I'm thinking of are very functional people. People with happy marriages, children in college, reasonable bank statements, <laughs> right? And yet, they have these limiting beliefs. You know, and I think that's to some extent true of all of us. And when we investigate those beliefs and people actually can get in touch with them, which can take in this work sometimes a year or two or more to really get closer to that, when they actually find it, what they also find, I, I ask them when they're really attuned to that belief, what, you know, when you're really noticed, what does it feel like when you really notice that mood of I don't matter, and how does it manifest in the body? And I ask them, go and let your body form around that belief. And we find, what do we find? We find the chest may cave in some. The shoulders may come towards the front. There's a whole physiology related to this. You know? Or we may have a certain level of tension in our body from having a belief that um, I'm probably going to mess up in what I do. You know? We can have a certain tension in our body. In the long run, that leads to disease or some problems with the body. You know? And so we start to see on this really deep level how the mind and the body and the heart are connected. Of course, it's going to have emotional relevance. And what we have found in this work is we can actually be in touch with the bodily manifestations, and it helps tremendously because when we tune into that, we can start to notice when we go into certain body states. Like if I notice that a certain kind of contraction is linked with a limiting belief, I can start being mindful when I go into that. You know, suppose I'm at a meeting and I'm got to say something, but I don't really want to. I notice myself going into this body state. I'm mindful of it. I can then be mindful and shift my body. And the mind starts changing. It's very fascinating. You know, that's why I think in meditation traditions, there's so much an emphasis on posture. And you may have thought it was just some, you know, something like a Victorian maxim of how proper gentlemen and ladies should walk and stand. 
I think it's actually way more profound than that. I mean, I don't know the Victorian traditions well enough to know if there are deep spiritual meanings around that. I don't think so. Um, but in many spiritual traditions, how one's body posture is, is taken to be very central, not just to look nice for meditation statues, but actually because the posture of the body influences how the mind and the heart are. And so we can study this. We can study this. And so in the people I've worked with, they could notice, or I can, I can notice when I'm feeling a little bit tense, my chest tends to cave in, my shoulders do, and I kind of grip my hands like this. I can tune into that when I'm doing that and notice it. I can then go to a place, a, a posture of my body where my hands open up, my spine is straighter, my chest is more open, and my thoughts change. It's a different uh, neurology, really. It's actually, I think, a different state of the brain. And so when we be, this is something like this understanding is the basis for a lot of the mind-body medicine. It's something we study in meditation. As we study the body and its relationship to the mind and the heart, we can start studying that. We can start noticing when I'm really tense, what's my body feel like? When I'm really tense, where does my mind go? Where does my heart go? As we study that and we start to have some ways of working with that, we, a lot of things happen. We have a wider sense of mind-body-heart relation. And we have a sense of how more constricted states of the body are related to more constricted states of the mind and the heart. And so we can do that work. We start to be able to see those uh, properties. We be begin to be able to make shifts. And I'm really um, condensing a lot of work, you know, some of the experiential work I was describing around judgments, that could take two or three years. I was talking about it in five minutes. <laughs> but I think you, I think probably many of us have had similar experiences, so it really means it's very, very helpful to, uh, and, uh, to take bodily experiences, particularly if there's moments of distress, and then just check in, what's my mind doing? What's my mood? Where's my heart? and to explore. And sometimes we need to explore a lot before things shift. I'm not saying you would just explore this for a few meditations and 50-year-old patterns go in the trash bin. But it's a great start. But the principle is quite important. It's really, hopefully, an invitation to really explore that sense of connection of mind, body, and heart. It's, a, it's also fascinating. You know, like it really lets us uh, ask that question, who are we? It's quite a uh, wonderful question. And so we, as we do this, we can also give some focus on what we might call a heartfelt way to be with our own bodies. And I want to really end with this emphasis that we can, that we can as, as I was inviting us to do before the group meditation, we can tune in to our own bodily experience and hold our bodily experience with loving kindness and compassion. 
it's a perspective that we can develop, that we can reflect on our own vulnerability as well as our own uh, beauty, our own uh, really magnificence. Uh, but we can have that sense of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, which are really these stations of the heart, that can be cultivated in relationship to our bodily experience. So what practices can help that? You might do loving kindness, and we often do it in relation to ourselves, in relation to others. You can focus on bodily experience in doing loving kindness. Can I do loving kindness in relationship to my body? If you're sick or if you have a small injury or if there's a physical difficulty, do loving kindness practice. Hold yourself with kindness. Hold your body with kindness. I think we can do that as a regular practice. Tune in to our own vulnerability as being these soft bodies. I mean, every, every being is vulnerable, but we don't even have hard shells. We've got soft bodies, got emotional natures which can be easily hurt. You know? We're conscious, which helps and it also makes us aware of our vulnerability. So sometimes we might say, why do I have to be conscious of all this? <laughs> right? And so we can do that kind of practice. We can have that spirit. It's, you know, the lines from the Metta Sutta from 2,600 years ago. Um, Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Can hold oneself like a mother or like a parent. Can hold others like that. Can we have that sense of loving kindness not just towards our bodies, but towards other bodies, so that we actually feel compassion when other bodies are having a hard time. I think it's actually one of the great challenges of our lives is how do we respond to the massive amount of suffering that we hear about? It's a really challenging question. You know, how do I relate to what I hear about in Haiti? or the poverty, or the person who, you know, is uh, poor and homeless, who I meet on the streets? How do I relate to the people who I know who are ill? You know, how, you know, I think the, the challenge is to have that compassionate heart, not just towards our bodies, but towards other bodies. Challenging, isn't it? It's a big challenge. What does that mean? I think we're each invited to ask that and to find ways to, to respond with, with, with compassion. And as we, I think as we have sometimes explored, it really, I think, is actually our deep nature to actually feel connected as bodies and as hearts. And it's maybe something that we actually learn to fall away from that. So I want to just end by mentioning one last aspect of bodily experience, which is that as we practice, I think we also have the invitation to open up to the mysterious. 
The relation of mind and body and heart is mysterious in itself. And so part of what practice does is it takes us out of the way in which we often take human experience for granted. And we get in a kind of automatic behavior where we just go about our lives without appreciating the mystery. You know, and I do myself. You know, but can we, can we remember this mysterious aspect? We can study it when we study the mind-body-heart relationship. We can study it when we do meditation and open up to um, the unknown, to the way that so much of our experience is related to what we don't know, to our unconscious, maybe to something bigger as well that there may be this deep impulse within us that in later Buddhist traditions is called Buddha nature, that's wanting to come out and express itself in our consciousness. That mysterious aspect, that deep love and freedom is our birthright. And how can we somehow remember that and open to that? That I may have a discrete body, but from another perspective, I can perceive myself as deeply interwoven with all other bodies when I look at things in certain, at certain moments. You know, and I brought in the painting. Some of you may know of the painter Alex Gray. Does anyone know his work? Very amazing work. He has, he has the paintings coming from his own experience of what it looks like to perceive through this sense, uh, through a much more of a sense of interconnection, so that we are, as it were, we have individual bodies, but we're also, for him, in this universal lattice of the mind, he calls it. And just a series of very intense, powerful paintings that really uh, open us up. And the, these kind of experiences can be accessed in different ways. Alex Gray. Yeah. Um, that there's this, and, and that working, exploring the body is one way to explore that, is one way to um, investigate the mysterious. And that I know, uh, I'll end with just, just two thoughts. One is that for me, the first long meditation retreat I did opened me up to aspects of the body which were unimaginable before I went in, which were aspects of the more energetic quality of the body, you know, which were just opened up another horizon. And the body can be a, a way that we open up to the unimaginable, to the mysterious, so I think I will just end with a, a short poem by the uh, 15th and 16th century Indian poet um, Kabir, which is really talking about the mysteries of the body, and I'll end with this. It's called The Guest is Inside. The guest is inside you and also inside me. I think the guest is, the, the term the guest, I believe, I know it's used in Sufi tradition in the Islamic mysticism as the sublime spiritual teacher. 
Okay, so I think he's using it in that sense. The guest is inside. The guest is inside you and also inside me. You know the sprout is hidden inside the seed. We are all struggling. None of us has gone too far. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. That's our basic meditation instructions. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. (laughs) The blue sky opens out further and further. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in that world. I hear bells ringing that no one has shaken. Inside love, there is more joy than we know of. Rain pours down, although the sky is clear of clouds. There are whole rivers of light. The universe is shot through in all parts by a single sort of love. How hard it is to feel that joy in all our four bodies. Those who hope to be reasonable about it fail. The arrogance of reason has separated us from that love. With the word reason, you are already miles away. How lucky Kabir is that, surrounded by all this joy, he sings inside his own little boat. His poems amount to one soul meeting another. These songs are about forgetting, dying, and loss. They rise above, both coming in and going out. So let's just sit for a minute or so. So you can keep it keep it on. So we have some time for uh, discussion, or questions, or reflections. Please, yeah. 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 And those uh, those practices have their own philosophy. They are complete by themselves. Yeah. They have the mind. They don't have only the body. We follow only the practice of the body eventually. Yeah. Uh, which is fine with me. I mean, it's still it seems like the, the, the practices that we choose are very similar, even though that they are not. I mean, to do yoga, you have the whole package. Of course, you wouldn't do uh, weightlifting. <laughs> Yeah. It works for me to a certain degree. I always have when I do yoga. I want. I don't have enough time to to give myself to all of them. Which again, it's very intellectual and doesn't matter. I mean, in the end, it doesn't matter. It's all beautiful. But there is some kind in the scenes sometimes. There is kind of uh, longing to one discipline for now for my level of development. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if everyone heard the question. It was coming out of the recognition 
that, for example, here at Spirit Rock, when we do our retreats, we do certain body practices for a few different reasons, like qigong or yoga, along with the meditation that these practices don't come out of Buddhist tradition. Uh, and so the, the question really is uh, uh, partly related to kind of a, a wondering, what a, maybe wondering about this mixing and some longing, perhaps, just to stay with one tradition for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, it's, um, it's a great question, and it's a complex question. Uh, we could actually take um, a few hours with it. Uh, because I think, uh, so a few things. First of all, in Buddhist tradition, there are plenty of body practices. You know, we've looked at those. We've done, in other words, practices that connect us with the body. And even that, um, you know, like the walking meditation, I think, was partly also keeps people fit, basically. If you're a monk or a nun doing a lot of walking, you can stay pretty healthy, I think. So, in a sense, I, I think it's um, uh, adequate. Those pr practices are adequate. And, you know, there are people who do the retreats who don't necessarily do yoga. They just choose to do the walking meditation. And, and, and that's fine. I mean, partly we do the yoga to uh, give people some ways of limbering their body so they are better able to sit. That's also... Um, and then there also are, in other Buddhist traditions, like Tibetan tradition, there also are a lot of other types of practice that we could do that are other body practices that we actually don't do here. Um, but I think that, uh, so from one perspective, I think we use those, but we, we use those always within the framework of mindfulness, that we actually don't go too deeply into the philosophy of qigong or the philosophy of yoga when we do that retreat, but we more have it within the rubric of mindfulness, like we just say, do these postures. So just generally try to be aware of your body. We don't do much more than that. And so it, in a sense, that can fit. On the other hand, <clears throat> I think that there's clearly something happening right now in our, at our evolutionary point where we have access to so many traditions, uh, ancient traditions, contemporary traditions, you know, my talk this morning, very much influenced by Western psychology. That's also part of the mix, right? Talk about mind, you know, influenced by people doing mind-body, what's called mind-body medicine, more Western. So I, I think that, um, you know, my own perspective is that there's something very rich happening, which happens every time Buddhism went to another culture, that it connected with rather different approaches. Buddhism goes to China, it connects with Taoism. You know, it produces something like Zen, which nothing like it exists quite in India. Right? So here we're having this connection of these very beautiful, powerful practices of mindfulness, of wisdom, some of, you know, a lot of which we've explored in these last weeks. But it's also connecting with... Uh, other tools and resources which seem important for the kind of lives that we have and who we are. Western psychological tools, maybe some of these other body practices, uh, you know, um, Western concepts of social justice, for example. 
and, and so forth. And I think there's some there's a kind of an integration happening that is hard hard to predict, but that is bringing these together. And I think you know many of us are doing this without even thinking about it much, you know, like you. But uh, how the philosophies come together, that's also quite interesting. Uh, yeah, that's a short answer, <laughs> a short, long answer. Yeah, I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Please, yeah. The question is, what, what translation of the Dhammapada? We have a, um, a slight local preference for the translation by Gil Fronsdell, because he's one of the Spirit Rock teachers. <laughs> so uh, uh, I like that one. Um, I think there, that, that'd be the one that I'd point to, I think. Um, I think a lot of the translations are tricky. I mean, it's interesting in terms of looking at uh, the theme of mind, body, heart, because in Buddhist tradition, experience <coughs> is, as it were, uh, organized differently. It tends to be towards uh, what we could call, uh, what's usually translated as mind is actually mind and emotion. And then you have body on the other hand. So every time in one of the translations when it says mind, you have to read mind and heart or it can get confusing. But that's the short answer. Uh, Gill's book, but you can look, um, I think they all have their merits, but Gill has, Gill's is published, I think, by Shambhala, and it ha- it's in the bookstore. Probably you can get a discount. <laughs> but it's, it has the merit of being uh, coming from a Pali scholar, someone who really knows the language, who's also deeply rooted in practice, and is, has done a fair amount of translation. So, thank you. <laughs> okay, maybe last one, and then we'll, then we'll close. Yeah. Please. Yeah. yeah, I was just reflecting as you were talking about the mind, body, heart, that at one point in time I was given a very simple instruction when I was tending, uh, for whatever reason, to let my mind go in sort of a negative spiral, was to put a smile on yeah. my face. Yeah, that's right. And just that alone, I mean, if you can force yourself to do that, even a, a gentle, soft smile, made a whole transformative difference in my thinking. And yeah. That is fascinating. Very simple thing thing to everyone here that just uh, smiling. Thich Nhat Hanh does that, says when you're meditating, smile. And I think there have been researchers actually show that it actually changes. That's what we're saying. uh, There are a number of body practices like uh, Feldenkrais and so forth, which um, have very subtle body shifts produce major shifts in mind and emotion. And just something like shifting how you hold your lips will change the mood. It's very hard to be smiling and be down in the dumps. And so we can do that. Or just, and, and that's partly what the invitation is to study, just to study that. And what I've, you know, some practices that I do in talking about working with limiting beliefs, what I invite people to do often is to do this kind of practice, to you know, over time we get a sense of what the limiting beliefs are. It takes a while sometimes. And we try to get a sense of what the bodily manifestation is of the limiting belief, much like I was saying before. So I might, and, and get a sense, it really, 
a simple way to say it would be, where does your body go when you're more shut down or contracted? You know? and, and then we ask you, exaggerate it. <laughs> exaggerate that sum. You know, so we're kind of like this. Looking, looking around. <laughs> and then move, let your body move to a place where you feel more empowered and centered without even dealing anything with the psychology of it. Just move your body to a place that feels more centered and empowered and really notice the specific parts of your body and how they're expressing yourself. So it's not to be just general, but notice what are your fingers like? What are your shoulders like? What's your spine like? What are your feet like? Because there's going to be, for a lot of these, a shift. Notice that posture. Notice how your body is when you feel more centered and empowered. And then, deliberately go there. You can even deliberately go there during the day. You're at a meeting. Someone says something that's very disturbing to you. You have to speak up. Are you going to speak up from the contracted judgmental place? Or can you uh, maybe, you know, for me, I would straighten my spine, be centered, and have my body come from a place from which it would be more likely that I simply wouldn't vent. Or you can just go to that body state over and over again during the day so it becomes more familiar. That's, again, part of the rationale for emphasizing posture. If you look at text in Zen, they say a certain posture of the body already is an enlightened state. And I, I thought that was, at first, a bunch of hoey, hooey, or hokey, or whatever the word is. And, but it actually, like what you're saying, the state of the body changes the nervous system, and it changes the mind, and changes the heart. That's so fascinating. And so we can actually ask ourselves, where is my body, what is my body like when it's most centered, most empowered? Study it, go there, and deliberately hang out there more often. And that changes things. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute. Feel free to have a smile on your face. And bring to mind whatever has been helpful from our time together these weeks or just today if you're here for the first time, and any intentions which come out of our time. And we end by remembering that we do these explorations and practices not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may the fruits of our time together be offered out beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit and healing of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.